I will be reading Psalm 115 this evening. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people, Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. We're going to pray. I hope you can uh, hang on to a Bible as we look through this passage together. It'll be a great help. Father God, we, we pray that you would give us honesty, that we would receive your word and where it speaks challenging truth, that we would not run away. We pray that you would give us discernment, that we would have hearts that can see truth. And we pray that you would give us a longing to know you. And we pray that as we do these things, we might find the liberating truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Who or what do you worship? Who's your God? You might think it's a pretty obvious and dull question. Actually, it's a much harder question to answer than you might think. Now, we probably assume it has something to do with uh, my religious identity. I'm a Christian, I worship Jesus. I'm a Muslim, I worship Allah. I'm a Hindu, I worship Brahma and the other gods. I'm a secular person. I don't worship any god at all. But when the Bible talks about God, about worship, it has a much deeper understanding. Your God is not necessarily the answer to which religion do you follow? But it's the answer to a set of much deeper, much more life-changing questions. So what do you value about, above everything else in the world? What are you willing to sacrifice almost anything to get? What is the thing that you think, if I have that, or if I achieve that, then... Uh, then I'll feel like I've made it, and I'll feel like my life has been worthwhile. Or or what's the thing that you think, if I lost that, or I fail to achieve that, I might as well not live. That is your God, your idol, the other word the Bible uses. That's who you really worship. And in that sense, we all worship, we all have gods, whether we call ourselves religious or not. Even those who are Christians need to think carefully about this question. Because we may find that answering those questions reveals that, 
Well, the God we worship on a Sunday as we sing is not quite the same as the God we serve as we go through our lives. Or at least he's only one of a number of gods who are shaping how we live. Now, there's, a, there's an important distinction that isn't often made that I think is helpful at this point, and that is between ends gods or ends idols and means idols, ends and means. Now, ends idols, those are the things that we really love, we value, we treasure above everything else, uh, maybe to be admired and loved by others, to be financially secure and have a comfortable lifestyle to have a happy family. We love those things. We worship them in the sense that we value them above anything else we can imagine. Those are the ends, the thing that we most want. But the way that the Bible talks about gods or idols, there are other kinds of idols, means idols. And those are the things that we look to and that we trust in to get the things we want. So career, looks, education, romantic relationships. Actually, we may not love, like, enjoy those things at all. And yet we're willing to give anything, everything for them. Why? Because we think they have the power to give me what I most desperately want. We worship them in the sense that we invest our deepest trust in them to protect us and to bless us. Now, you may know, I often hear people say, no, I don't have an idol of work. Work is not my idol. I do not love my job. I positively hate it, unless my boss is in the room, in which case I'm very committed to it. But I hate my job. How can you tell me my job is an idol? But dig deeper and you realize you're willing to sacrifice anything for work, almost anything. Relationships, health, dignity, because you think that that career is the only possible way of getting what you most want, the financial security, the comfortable lifestyle. In other words, it's a means, God, that you trust in to provide you with what you most want, the ends, God, of, of a comfortable life. Okay, perhaps interesting, but why does it matter? It really matters that you understand your heart and what your God, your gods are, because of the verse that stands at the heart of Psalm 115. Look with me at verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Or to put it another way, we become like what we worship. We become like the things we worship. Your life your character, your values will be shaped by the things that you most live for. It's just inevitable. Now we'll see in practice uh, what, is that, what that means, what that looks like in the reality of life as we go through. But the message of Psalm 115 is, is stark and brutal, we're going to see, but it is also liberating and true. And that is that all the other things that you and I treat as God, they end up failing us or diminishing us. But Jesus Christ will help protect and bless, and he will give you life and joy. Those are big, stark claims, but I believe that they are true. He is the ultimate ends, and he is also the only perfectly reliable means. 
Okay, now before we, uh, before we get into the beginning of the psalm, let me just show you the, from the careful structure that verse 8 really does lie at the heart. I haven't just picked it out. So you'll see, if you look at um, it in your Bibles, verses um, 1 to 3 and verses... Uh, 16 to 18, they, they really match. So verses 1 and verse 18 are all about praising the Lord. Uh, verses 2 and 17 are about um, the nations who ignore God or those who don't speak, who, who don't worship God. Verses 3 and 16 are about God being in the heavens. And then verses 4 to 7 expose that the other things we worship, they just can't help us. And they contrast with verses 12 to 15 which proclaim that God will remember and bless us. And that leaves the middle section, verses 8 to 11, which tells us we are shaped by the things we worship. And so calls on us, so worship, put your trust in, live for the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Okay, just two points for you. Uh, Other gods will fail you or ruin you, and Jesus Christ will bless you and fill you with praise. So this is a psalm, a song of confidence and praise that recognizes the God of the Bible is the only true God and that praises him for every good thing. Now the opening statement makes that clear. Verse 1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. The God of the Bible is defined by love and faithfulness. Those are, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible, those are big Bible words. Love is a, is a particular word, chesed, which, which means not just love as a, a romantic feeling. It means love as a passionate commitment. It's, it means love as an unbreakable desire to do good. It's, it's saying, I promise, I commit, I covenant to love you and nothing will ever stop me from loving you. That's what it means. Uh, the other word, faithfulness, is emet. It means um, truth. And it, when paired together, it's saying, look, God will always be true to his commitment to love his people. There is no power in the universe which can stop God loving you. It means that the fundamental principle that governs your life, if you trust in God, is not blind fate or, or the outworking of karma, but the rule of God's perfect love and faithfulness in your life. So when good things happen, the psalm, the psalmist, verse 1, praises God. Apparently, Henry V's army sang this particular psalm after Agincourt when they defeated a much bigger French army who they thought was going to annihilate them. Gratuitous. It's just nice to talk about. The um, William Wilberforce, it's so long ago you're allowed to celebrate those things. William Wilberforce prayed this psalm much more seriously. He prayed this psalm at the end of the grueling 20-year battle to have the slave trade, the British part of the slave trade, abolished. When the abolition bill was passed, he prayed these words, thanking God. Now the tone rather changes from celebration to mockery in verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Here is an Israelite believer from the Old Testament. So the Psalms written, these Psalms probably between 1,000 and 400 BC, around that sort of time. And they're being mocked by, um, by somebody who says, Look, you, where is your God? Because the Israelites had no statues, no idols. They worshipped a God you couldn't see with your eyes or touch with your hands. Well, that was ridiculous in the eyes of the surrounding nations. Like, Look, we've got our gods right here. We can see them. This big stone thing. Where's yours? I mean, how can you worship a God you can't see? Now, many here who trust in Jesus will have heard similar taunts. How is your imaginary friend? 
You believe in the invisible sky fairy still? Good for you. Good for you. I'm scientific. I need evidence. You may have faith. I like to trust in things I can touch and see. Maybe said with a sarcastic voice, but you have to admit it makes a good point. Where is this God we say we worship? The response of the Old Testament believer comes in verses 3 to 8. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. It is the difference between an invisible, omnipotent God and visible but impotent statues. A couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough to go on um, holiday in Egypt to the ancient temple city at Karnak, and it was stunning. These enormous stone-carved figures, the size of a London bus turned on its end. And it's, pretty in, it's almost intimidating as you, as you walk down this avenue with these huge figures looming over you. You can imagine the Old Testament believer feeling a bit, gosh, what have I got compared with this? But when you think about it, the the stone gods weren't really so impressive after all. I mean, there's not much point in having a head the size of a Range Rover if the eyes can't see anything. If the stone ears can't hear the prayers of needy people. The stone mouth can't speak words of encouragement or challenge. The stone hands can't move to comfort or to protect. At the end of the day, they're just big lumps of rock. You might be able to see those gods, but they do nothing. You can't see the God of the Bible, but verse 3, he does stuff. He does whatever pleases him. In other words, he's not tied to or constrained by creation. There are no external limits upon him. Nothing has a hold over him. He answers to no one. So he has absolute power to be true to his loving character. And that's a wonderful comfort. And it's precisely for this reason that the God of the Bible commanded his people, don't make statues of me. He's explicit about that. Because he's nothing like an inanimate lump of stone. He does see, he does hear, he does speak. He does act with mighty power. He's far too great to be represented by by some lump of wood or stone or carved metal. He's the uncreated creator. He rules over the creation. Hey, look, I've got some, some Play-Doh here I stole from my children. It would have just ended up in the dog's ear, so it's probably better I hang on to it. There you go. Um, stick up a hand if you call yourself artistic in any way. Any artistic people? Yes, a few. Right. What I would like you to do um, after the sermon, you're going to concentrate on the sermon, but I would like you, um, as an artistic person, Liz, to uh, mould this into a model of the Grand Canyon, which conveys all of the awe-inspiring grandeur and magnificent scale of that wonder of nature. You can't. It's a tiny little bit of pink Play-Doh. The Grand Canyon is a wonder of the world. But neither can you find any physical thing that could ever be molded into something that could convey... Anything of the magnificent, glorious reality of the creator of the universe. 
God is nothing like the statues. He's far greater. How amazing, though, that the uncreated creator did enter his creation and became the physical man, Jesus, who had ears that did hear our cries, eyes that did look with compassion on our needs, hands that did reach out to heal and help, and a mouth that spoke words of truth and compassion. But the real sting of these verses, it, they come in the tale in the final statement in verse 8, where we learn that actually, for all their impotence, the idols do have one great power. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. They make us like them. We become like what we worship. We become what we value. Actually, it's not really a power in the idol. It's just a fundamental principle in the universe. We're shaped by the things that we love and value. And the more that we love something, the more we're shaped by it. You see it all the time. And it doesn't matter whether you call it a god or not. Teenagers, what they value most is acceptance from peers. I mean, we all remember that from being teenagers. So you dress the same, you talk the same, you listen to the same music. Because peer acceptance is the thing that you most want. And so we'll happily dye our hair purple and listen to emo music or whatever happens to be, you know, the thing at that moment. We become like them. Of course, it doesn't stop when you grow up. We might become a bit more sophisticated, but not much. But we become like what we worship, what we value. So people who value being in a relationship above everything else, they become shaped by that. Well, what do you mean? How can you become like a relationship? Well, you begin to sacrifice anything for relationships, work, friendships, perhaps even moral convictions. They all happily get ditched to get a relationship. And you know the phrase, my other half. When people value romantic relationships so highly, it's as if they become less than a full person unless they're in a relationship. Like Miss Havisham, it's like life is not happening unless I'm married. When you value career, that too shapes you. I don't mean you spend your evenings surfing LinkedIn rather than Instagram and you have performance appraisals for your flatmates, but the, but the, the career begins to shape everything. Your whole life is orientated by getting ahead. Your sense of morality will start to shift and soften in some areas if you realize that convictions might get in the way of career. Relationships, time, all sacrifice to get ahead. Friends, family, some of those com commitments just get ditched because career has to win. If you live for the approval of others, you fear losing that more than anything else. You might rely on your looks, not me obviously, or your wit, or your ability to manipulate how you look and what you say on social media anything to keep the likes and the follows and the shares streaming in. And eventually you become the masks you wear and you lose your identity and your convictions. You become plastic, a performance, just an avatar willing to say whatever it takes, do whatever it takes to be popular. If you build your life on being clever, educated, qualified, if the thing you most want is for other people to respect your intellect, 
You'll become cynical, hard, and argumentative. You'll despise people who are less clever than you and feel utterly threatened by people who are cleverer. Your head will swell and your heart will shrink and you won't be useful to love and serve other people. You become like what you worship. And the question is not whether you're being shaped by other things, other people, other ideas. All of us are leaning towards something in life. All of us are worshipping. All of us have our life pointing somewhere, have a goal. The question is, what is shaping you? What do you value most? What are you leaning into with your life? You see, those things that you value and worship, they are either growing your soul or shriveling you. Henry Skugel wrote, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And to be honest, even the very best things of this world that we seek after are far short of what we were designed for. And deep down, I think we all know it. We were made for more. But secondly, Jesus will bless you and fill you with praise. The psalmist now turns to look at the Lord, the God of the Bible, in verse 9. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. Israelites, that's the, the people of God in the Old Testament. House of Aaron, that's the, the religious leaders. And those who fear the Lord, that's non-Israelites who worship this God. And the point is, everybody, whoever you are, worship the God of the Bible. That's his point. And you can see, I hope, that the verses 9 to 13 are two sets of three with repeated phrases. It's basically like a football crowd chanting to each other. A bit more repeatable than most of what you hear on the terraces. It's, they're chanting that God is our help and shield, verses 9 to 11. They're chanting in 12 to 13, he is the one who blesses. And both the call and the command to trust the God of the Bible and, and the promise of 13, they show why the psalmist says, look, Look, I know we're not meant to say any challenge people about their belief systems, but I want to tell you, put your trust in the God of the Bible. Wherever your trust is, put it in him. It's so much better because uh, he is the help who provides all we need. He is the shield who protects from all that would destroy. He will bless us. That is, he will act on those loving feelings he has towards you. They will be cashed out in real, tangible ways now and in eternity. He is better than money, relationships, popularity, physical health, education. He's better than anything that we might trust in. Anything. I don't know about you, but the, the videos from Afghanistan in the last week have been just appalling to watch. It's been, as somebody said, it was like watching a zombie movie, watching just this huge sea of people charging across the airfield towards the airplanes. It was just, it was unreal. It, the desperation on the faces to read some of the stories of terror of people who had started to build the new Afghanistan 
women who were standing as politicians who'd opened schools for girls and and had become internationally renowned and now they're well known and they reasoned all these people who'd served the coalition for the last 20 years and who'd invested themselves they reasoned the mightiest military power the world has ever known is saying we've got your backs we're invested in this place and we're going to make it stable. We're going to be fine. Until it wasn't. They found not even the mighty US military is an unbreakable certainty. Now, why is the Bible such a long book? Uh, why have you got all these hundred pa- hundreds and hundreds of pages of history when you can summarize the central message of the Bible pretty simply? Put your trust in Jesus. He died to pay for your sins, and he gives you eternal life. It doesn't take long. So why all these hundreds and hundreds of pages? Well, they cover hundreds and hundreds of years of history so that we can see God has a track record that stretches from the start of human history and he has proved to be a help and a shield and a blesser to all who trusted in him. This is, these are customer reviews from those who found you can trust the God of the Bible always, always, always does what he has promised. You can trust him. We can trust the God of the Bible never to fail us, but just as wonderful is what happens when we fail him. Because if you fail your career, and you've built everything on your career, you fail your career, we all know what happens. You get sacked. You fail a romantic relationship, you get dumped. You fail to say the right thing on social media or look the right way, and you get ignored, sidelined, or even cancelled. What happens if you fail the God of the Bible? What happens if you fail him? It's, it's actually hinted at in verses 9 to 11. He is our help and shield. What does a shield do? I was going to say we've got some soldiers here, but they're a bit past the days of swords and shields, one hopes, even with defense cutbacks. But a shield, we all know, a shield is the thing that kind of protects you from a blow that's going to hurt you. And Jesus is our shield. See, on the cross, Jesus wasn't just performing an extravagant gesture of love. He was acting as our shield when he died on the cross. He stepped between the just punishment of God, the death that we deserve for our rejection of God. He stepped between us and the punishment we deserve. He acted as our shield and he absorbed the blow of justice. He died our death so we could be forgiven. When we fail this God, he forgives. Verses 14 to 15 then give another reason to to build your life on the God of the Bible rather than other things. Verse 14, may the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Anybody here still have checkbooks or are they only something for people as old as me? No one's going to admit, now I've said it's an old people thing, but I've still got a checkbook. Hooray, well done me. Um, I'm making an offer here uh, and you you can choose. Either I can write you a check for one billion pounds, or would you prefer it if Jeff Bezos wrote you a check for one billion pounds? Who would like a check from me? Hands up now. Who would prefer a check from Jeff? Oh, a few more hands. What a surprise. Why? It's a simple question of resources. 
<laughs> my current account can't quite guarantee a check for a billion. Jeff's can, even with all his spending on space. When you turn to the God of the Bible for blessing and help, you turn to the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, he is better resourced than Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Elon Musk combined. He made everything. There is no one better resourced to trust him. He can do what he's promised. And then the last verses, where they really call us to a life of eternal praise. Verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth is given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. They gently ask, does the thing you're building your life on make you want to sing for joy? The idols, the idols are, well, they're ultimately worthless. They cannot help or protect, and they can't give you life. But Jesus, Jesus gives you life and makes you sing for joy. And to live for him is to be marked by eternal praise because he is worthy and the life that he gives endures forever. That's why it's eternal praise that he gets. Okay, what do we do with this? Well, as I said, verse 8 lies at the heart of Psalm 115, the truth that we become like what we worship. You were meant for eternal life. You were meant for eternal delight. You were meant to fully reflect the image of Almighty God. And so the Bible says, so worship Jesus Christ and be shaped by him. See, Jesus is the holiest the most courageous, the least selfish, the happiest, least hypocritical, freest, most joyful person who ever walked the earth. And he lives forever. And you can become like him. Wonderfully, 2 Corinthians 3 says, it's not only the idols that can shape us. Paul writes these words, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord Jesus' glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we contemplate, as we worship, as we lean towards Jesus in corporate worship, singing his praises, submitting to his word, bringing to him our prayers, as we do that, well, just as when you spend time in the sun, your face gets tanned, So as we spend time with the Lord Jesus, it's as if we're changed. Not our skin color, but our character. His radiant, loving goodness begins to work out from the inside of our lives. See, the question you need to walk out of here, all of us need to walk out of here, I as much as you, is who do you want to be in five, ten years' time? What or who do you want to be like in five or ten years' time? Are you drifting towards the idols that all of us unknowingly serve? Or are you pressing towards the Lord Jesus and being made whole and full in him? The choice really is ours. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, whether we're very familiar with these things or new to them, we pray that you would help us to see 
that everything else we might build our lives on, as good as those things are, they cannot save us. And ultimately, they're powerless to bless us. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is God. He has all the power to bless and to protect us. Thank you that he is the one who has forgiven us through his death, and he is the one who loves us eternally. Help us, we pray, to worship him, to live for him, that we might become more like him, more the rich, full, radiant beings that you long for us to be. Help us, we pray, to press on towards that great goal for your glory and our good. Amen.